Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Jack Semler is a plant practitioner, a multidisciplinary creative, a high-skilled horticulturalist, and the human behind an epic new book and the Australian-based plant practice known as Superbloom. As our northern hemisphere gardens and landscapes settle into whatever their annual dormancy and winter rest might look like, we head to the southern hemisphere in conversation with Jack. Her philosophy behind the work known as Superbloom gives us so much to dream about in our deep winter rest. In the meantime, from Australia, I am so pleased to welcome you to Cultivating Place, Jack. Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. It is such a pleasure to be talking to you from my garden today. Yeah. Oh. So could you please start us off by reading that very first paragraph in your introduction to Super Bloom? My heart lives in my garden. In the garden, I know who I am my family, my history, my loves and losses, and my dreams for the future. The practice of gardening and tending plants has nurtured my relationship with the landscape and helped me form a sense of place and identity. There is a wholeness I feel being with plants in the everyday. It is a source of sustenance, strength, freedom, care and calm, and boundless creative expression. Learning from plants and how to nurture them together as a meaningful community within the garden is ever fascinating. Mm. I just loved this paragraph, Jack. And I loved that in most of my interviews, I start off with the question, can you give me a distillation of what plants mean or signify in your life? And this was such a perfect articulation of that, I, I believe, for the role they play in your life. Yes, I just believe that they really have become a source of everything, not only my <laughs> livelihood, as you mentioned, but connection to people, what it means to be living in Australia, um, my background, everything always seems to come together in the garden. Yeah, it does. It does for me too. So uh, we are we are kindred spirits here. Mm. So you know, I would love for uh, before we dive into this really magnificently sized and uh, magnificently researched book, I would love to have you take us back to your earliest life, where where you were born and raised, and who the people and places and plants were, or at least the highlights of those, that grew you into a person for whom anything like a plant manifesto might be important, Jack. Mm. I had an idyllic childhood. I grew up on a farm in central Victoria, so on the southeast part of Australia, I grew up with a family that that built their own house. Uh, I grew up in a family where gardening was just what you did. Like it was mm. just very much part of who we are in our history. 
And on both sides of my family, I had these incredible women, these really strong, tough women who, you know, grew through adversity. And I just have these incredible memories as a younger kid running around in my gumboots and spending so much time on the farm, but also in these family farm gardens as well. And just having all of these incredible experiences coming together with family in gardens, but also spending lots of time just being free as a child on a farm and being able to run through the neighbouring bushland and run through to the river and everything like that. So I really did have that kind of idyllic upbringing as a kid. And I think that that really kind of stuck into my DNA in a way. Mm -hmm. And not only just like having those experiences, but just growing up in that family where it was just what we did. And, you know, my grand, my grandmothers, in a, especially in a lot of aunties, were just these incredible plants women as well. So you were on a farm. Was it a farm like with animals or plants or both? And what is the native sort of biome of central Victoria, Jack? Yeah. Like what were what were your native plant companions like? Yes, absolutely. So in central Victoria, it was like box eucalypts. So lots of eucalypt woodlands and forests. Mm-hmm. Um, with, you know, very dry in summer for lots of, you know, for a long period, it would be very dry. But then we would have these wet kind of, you know, wet winters with the odd frost. It's fairly temperate in in that kind of part of the world. And I mm-hmm. just remember, yeah, exploring all these local kind of woodlands and, and you know, you get you get that really strong, uh, eucalyptus scent any time that you you spend time in those woodlands in Australia. And so, you know, to spend time in those forests, it it was really fundamental to to how I got here. Yeah. So you grew up there. You you do you go on to study horticulture or garden design or take us on the journey that leads you from growing up on a farm, running around as a feral child, helping <laughs> aunties uh, in this idyllic way that I wish we could offer all children yes. all the time, but uh, but we we don't. And um, I think holding that up as a valuable way to grow up is important. Yes. Yeah, take us from there. So I I think in Australia, because I'd done so well in school, I you know, I've always done very well academically. And in Australia, becoming a gardener, it was just never an option. It was never seen as like a, a proper <laughs> career path, which is quite it's quite funny. <laughs> And so I think that there was always that urge there, but there was never any discussion around what kind of vocational career you could have connected to your professions. It was, you know, become a doctor, become a lawyer, you know, having good grades. There was always that emphasis on on pursuing that academically. But Mm -hmm. I I made my parents compromise. And I actually ended up studying education. So I studied education. Mm. I studied outdoor education. So a lot of environmental and ecology subjects and spending a lot of time in the bush and exploring different environments as well. 
And during that time, um, I'd been quite fortunate. So my dad worked for the Department of Primary Industries, so agriculture and environment in Victoria at that time. And we would always go out collecting seeds of Indigenous and Native plants. And so mm. I actually got this incredible job when I was studying at Dred, where I worked for this incredible woman, Marilyn Sprague, who is like an incredible expert on Australian native plants and ran this nursery in the Goldfields region of, of Victoria, very dry and arid during summer. And I worked together with her when I wasn't studying, propagating plants, collecting seeds, planting and there was this incredible team mostly women of just these very passionate plant people and they really mm. opened my eyes I think to the subtlety of beauty in the Australian landscape because a lot oh. of our wildflowers sometimes they're not big and loud um they're they're subtle delights little green hood orchids and and little dainty things and so I think that that was an incredible time but I went on to have a career in outdoor education for quite a bit of time so I worked with young people at risk in remote places in Australia in the Victorian high country uh mm -hmm. you know an alpine environment with amazing twisted snow gums and and grass plains and it was really incredible, but I think working in outdoor education, you get to a point where you wonder where your knees are going <laughs> to hang on. And right, right. it was definitely a time to change careers. And I'd worked, I'd worked in outdoor education in, in Alice Springs in the centre of Australia, and I mm -hmm. knew I needed to change careers. And I, I've always been a small town girl and there's this incredible community in Alice Springs where you where you feel like you're just part of a rural community again and so I worked I, I moved there and I worked and I started working in community engagement and working for incredible Indigenous science and technology organizations up there and spending a lot of time out in the desert country um, doing different work and I met my partner there, so I fell in love in the centre of Australia as well, which was always always very a very special kind of fond moment of that time. Yeah. Yeah. And then so it kind of, you know, plants always get you in the end, but don't they, Jennifer? Like you can't. Oh, they do. Yeah. You can't help yourself. <laughs> I would agree with that. And I, I think the people who haven't yet been hooked in, like that's, that's who we want to yes. to hear this conversation, to hear all these conversations, to look at Super Bloom and just, you know, be immersed. And yes. um, yeah, I love that. So, okay. So at this point in the story, you're still in Central. Yes. And, we, and is that where you still are now? No. So Okay, good. We <laughs> moved, keep me going. Yeah. We moved down south um to study and I was working for the South Australian government. And and you know, you just have that desire. You just feel like what you're doing in your day-to-day -day doesn't link in with your heart or with mm. your bigger purpose. And so I started studying landscape design at night. And that ended up <laughs> it made me in the end chuck in my day job and study horticulture in South Australia and I started working for an organization called the Diggers Club which is like the mm -hmm. RHS in Australia 
yep. like the Royal Horticultural Society in the UK. It's a bit similar. And I worked and that, you know, that's when my just heart just erupted. So I worked with plants for many years in different roles with them before eventually being able to start my own plant practice. So so plants, plants, they got back to me in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wait, but I want to, I want to go back a little bit to Mm. your work at the Diggers Club, because Mm -hmm. this is one of those great ways in which social media is a, a a beautiful thing in our world, because we, I, I am guessing that most of us in the United States would have never had the opportunity to understand what the Diggers Club was or who Jack Semler was, or, you know, what Australian plant biomes are like, but they are much more familiar to us because as plants people, we kind of find each other in mm. these spaces and we are able to expand our understanding through this kind of armchair relationship, right? And um, and the Diggers Club is a fascinating uh, group doing great work. And you specifically did a, quite a bit of work with their seed, their seeds, right? Yes. So I was their seed manager for quite a few years. And I think it was so incredible. Um, The Diggers Club in the past have done work to preserve a lot of heritage seed varieties in Australia. And it was, I think there's something so emotional. I know that you connect so well to this too, Jennifer, just that wonder and the amazing just the amazement that you can have with seeds, like and how they germinate and how they grow and just all this dormant potential in seeds. So I worked for many years as the seed manager and and it was always so fabulous doing trials and understanding them better and doing big projects that use them, like doing different big meadows and exploring their use. And But most importantly, I think really supporting the home gardeners and anyone with with that plant passion that might not have had a chance to have that upbringing or the opportunity to garden how do we help them along that way to discover all that beauty and wonder this is cultivating place conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden i'm jennifer jewell Jack Semler is a plant practitioner, a creative, a horticulturalist, and the gardening human behind an epic new book and the Australian-based plant practice known as Superbloom. Jack believes there is a hunger for beauty in the world and that plants are essential to the practice of bringing living beauty to our lives. We'll be right back for more with Jack after a quick break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Hey, it's Jennifer. So I want to repeat what I mentioned 
two weeks ago. It's rare that I have a chance to thank you as listeners and participants as well in this effort of cultivating place. I have that chance right now and I'm going to take it. The only way this podcast has grown in the flourishing, mutually beneficial, healthy, word-of-mouth way that it has grown these past eight years with listeners and depended upon financial supporters, without me hustling for commercial sponsors, without me hustling to take on consumer-based advertising or place cultivating place behind a paywall, is because of you. It is because of you listening. It is because of you supporting. It is through the very pedestrian pathways of people sharing episodes with other people, commenting, or posting in newsletters, email groups, and of course on social media about an episode that particularly resonated with them, or simply what the weekly conversations add to their lives. It is by people rating and writing reviews for Cultivating Place in places like Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else people write reviews. So I have an offer I'd like to make. I have five gift codes to download the audio version of What We Sow. I'd like to send them out to five of you. For anyone that is called to write a review in any of these places, to send an email or make a Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn post about why a specific Cultivating Place episode or the entire program and podcast matter to you, Do that and then send me a screenshot of that rating or review or post. I'll add your name to a hat and on December 21st, the winter solstice itself, I'll draw five names out of that garden hat and I will send those five people a gift code to the audio version read by me of What We Sow. Thank you in advance for considering this generous, mutual, flourishing, and sharing of things we love, because that's how we grow. We're back now to our conversation with Australian-based plant practitioner and plants woman, Jack Semler. She is the author of the new book, Super Bloom, a newly envisioned gardening encyclopedia for our times with a distinctly Australian accent. As we come back, Jack is sharing more about the idea of what it means to be a plant practitioner. For me, gardening and being with plants, it is so much that practice, Mm. especially since plants are surprising and they're dynamic Mm -hmm. and they have life cycles and they're always changing. Nothing is ever static in the world of plants. And I always feel in my approach, like I will never feel like I'm ever an expert in plants. Yeah. Ever. Because <laughs> the moment you think you think you have a handle on something, this this whole other door of learning and and um and killing things right. oh, God. <laughs> kind of yeah. pops up. Right. Yeah. Right. 
or you think you've killed something and then it pops up over Ooh. there, right? And so yes. all all of these things are true. We always have more to learn. Um so you you go from the Diggers Club, uh which mm. is essentially a national horticultural society and yeah. you evolve from there. Take us on that journey. Yes, so while at the Diggers Club I had other opportunities to work in different roles. So I was I led all the ornamentals for a time and and worked on some amazing projects in our city of Melbourne as well. And for me, I have always just had a big curiosity around what's possible and also what's possible for our public realm because mm-hmm. especially like in Australia I'm I'm sure it's the same elsewhere around the world that you know housing is becoming more temporal um and not everybody has the luxury of a big backyard to be able to garden and explore and I think I've always believed very strongly that plants are for all people so you know, and yet when we look around public landscapes in Australia, you know, there is a real low diversity of the kinds of plants that we grow in them. And and there is so much, we know that real personal connection that we have mm-hmm. uh, with plants and, and what they can do to the biodiversity, the well-being of our public, all of these amazing things. And so I knew that there was a bit of a gap there because knowing plants so well and having, having you know, years of experience of working with them, of understanding them in different ways, and yet there's always been a bit of a gap around how they're used in our landscapes and used in gardens and used in, used in different ways as well in projects and creative work. I kind of thought that there would be a bit of a window there and I was very lucky to be started to be invited um, to be part of projects with landscape architects to really bring that plant passion to them and to work in multidisciplinary teams as well. And so it super blew my practice. It kind of just evolved. I knew mm. with with the book, um, getting that opportunity with Thames and Hudson, I knew that there were all the seeds there ready to germinate something special yeah. to really kind of kind of explore what what is possible to be you know being a plant person in this world yeah. yeah so did the book come first or did the professional practice come first and then the the book was named after that the book came first oh interesting yeah then, yeah the book came first and but around the same time, so I was writing it and I and I knew, I knew that I'd always been very passionate about being an advocate for plants and I just knew, I knew that the, the planets were lining up and that that was the right time to, to just give it a red hot crack. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I, it's always the right time to give it a red hot crack. I love that. <laughs> um, so, okay, so the book is called... Super Bloom. Can you talk about the layers in that? And and one of the things that I loved is that you and I have followed each other on Instagram for some time, but the fact that you were able to come over to the United States and be in California in a Super Bloom spring, it was just like kind of a perfect manifestation of uh, all the meanings of of the, the phrase. So tell us a little bit more about that. 
Yes, it was so incredible to be part of that. I think it was really one of those plant dreams come true. Yeah, yeah. We have super blooms in Australia as well. So we have these, especially like living in Alice Springs and living, you know, in alpine areas as well, we would have these mass flowering events, especially in the centre where it would rain and you would get this incredible response from the plants where suddenly everything was in flower, everything was moving, you know, just to have that kind of contrast and drama in the landscape. I always thought that there was something so magical about those moments in nature where where things just can kind of bloom in such a rapid way and completely change landscapes. And and in such an artistic way too, where you just have mountains with colour. And um, it's always been so incredible and, and held me in a lot of awe. But also I really think that there is this heroic quality that plants have and a heroic role that plants play in our lives as well. Yeah, I really feel that that flowers and plants, that they have these superhuman qualities and they really call to us. They call to us that superhuman that we have in ourselves as well. Uh, that thread of of heroism and um, and superhero, really, uh, capacity for plants and nature and humans to come together in such a thing as a super bloom, because it happens without us, but it's us seeing it and being transformed by it that makes it into a human phenomena as well as much as a, a natural phenomena in a way. Mm. Yeah. And I think that super bloom, like it really calls to the hunger that we have in our hearts mm -hmm. for beauty and nature. Mm -hmm. The fact that so many people travel to these events that you know, are on the roads, exploring them, wanting to be immersed in that experience. I think it really, it really is like symbolic of how much we crave those connections to nature and those connections to plants. Agreed. So completely. Yeah. Um, you segued quite beautifully into it with this yeah. idea of our hunger, like our real hunger for not only beauty, but for a diversity of beauty, which is part yes. of what you are supporting through the quantity of uh, profiles and information in, in the book. Mm, beautiful. Yes, I just, it's, it's just been so incredible. It's been such an incredible experience writing Super Bloom and, and bringing that together with Thames and Hudson just this gorgeous publishing team, but also to be able to work with Sarah Panel, who did the photography. Mm -hmm. She's a documentary photographer, a travel photographer, and I think that the way that she captured the imperfect wonder and beauty in a garden mm -hmm. where there's a luminosity to the pho photography and, and there's capturing the little petal that's fading, you know, it's a real expression of of the wonder that we can experience in a garden. Yeah. In a way, the book is, uh, and I think you actually state it this way, is sort of a, a both a reinvention and a reinvigoration of what we might consider like a gardening encyclopedia in many ways, mm. a sort of, you know, 
all around, like if you would think of a standard cookbook, you know, a Mm. general all around cookbook, this has a lot of the makings of a good, like on hand garden encyclopedia from, you know, the soil ecology and forward. If you were to tell me a mission about why you thought it needed reinvigorating or reinventing, mm. um, and and your how you went about mm. compiling what you what you did, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Mm. I really want people to fall back in love with gardening, mm-hmm. and I think it's so easy. Like if you haven't been so lucky as us to have a sense of confidence with growing plants. It's very easy to kill something or or feel like you're not doing it right Mm -hmm. or even feeling like what is the right way to garden when I think a lot of us gardeners know that there isn't any right way. It's all about, you know, knowing your place better, knowing nature better. You like what you how you described it, it is a practice. It's something that you get it better with over time. It's a skill. And so I really wanted to create something that can convey the beauty and invite anybody to garden. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's about. It's a field guide of flowers for every gardener, even ones that haven't identified themselves as gardeners yet. <laughs> I just wanted to <laughs> create something that would really bring them in and and encourage them to have a crack, just to have a go at gardening, just to get your hands in the dirt and to really formulate it in a way where there was beautiful information, but it was also a beautiful big book of permission too, that there's no right way. You can follow your heart. If you grew up with pelargoniums, grow them again. It doesn't matter whether they're a plant that's, you know, cool or in trend anymore. Like really kind of find the find the things that really connect to your heart because mm. we tend and we care for things that we really love. Yeah. So if we start there, that's how we can create beautiful gardens. Yeah, yeah. And I I love right off the bat, uh, one of your kind of permission slips, if you will, but also uh, passionate encouragements is maximum plants, like just more, (laughs) more plants, more flowers, more plants, more flowers. (laughs) And, and, and the book encourages that. And, and I think it's true because we do see this dearth of diversity in most garden landscapes. And I I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but I'm guessing it is where, you know, you have these like home gardens that are rolled out and they have the same 10 plants. And I I would guess that, you know, in some cases, they're the same 10 plants there as they are here, as they are in, you know, I don't know, suburban Japan. And that is a travesty. Absolutely. I feel that where you know we're still very much bound in in a lot of like colonial traditions in Australia and with the industry the way it is as well it's there are very small amounts or small pellets of plants being used whether that's in home gardens or whether that's in our public landscapes as well mm-hmm. and so it's really it's so important like there are so many incredible plants so many incredible plants that are well suited to the conditions in your garden to your climate and so there's you know there's so much to explore and and when you get that diversity you know you get the different things happening 
throughout the seasons. You know, you get all these different kinds of moments of wonder when those different plants come together. You know, you get a sense of abundance, you get rich tapestries of plants and and you know why have like why have a whole lot of lawn when you can have so many more plants so we we are plant maximalists we're <laughs> we're very proud of that mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i'm all for it okay so you you give us a lot of basics walk us through those like setup basics and then we'll get into the heart of the plants that you include mm. So I've definitely got, I wanted to make sure that, you know, we could equip gardeners, so especially beginners that are starting, we can give them some of those fundamentals around understanding soil and understanding our climate and our seasons, understanding light. So just all of those kind of fundamentals that you need to kind of get started, some basic bits of information to understand how plants are named, all those kinds of basics. So you've just got a nice little footing to get started. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a big book, so it's hard to like tote around, but uh, (laughs) it includes, you know, natural parameters, plant biology, soil ecology, the, the garden is a microcosm, gardening as an art form. And then we get into plant profiles. And Mm. one of the things that I found really fascinating is that many of these plants are plants that gardeners in the US or the UK will certainly recognize. But there's also a healthy dose of uh, Australian natives. About what percentage would you say were Australian natives, Jack? I think that's about 20% Australian natives. Mm -hmm. Just being conscious that some of these things that we do grow in Australia and that we're very lucky to grow in Australia might not be readily sourced elsewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Jack Semler is a plant practitioner. She is a high-skilled horticulturalist and the gardening human behind a new book and the Australian-based plant practice, both known as Superbloom. We'll be right back for more with Jack to talk about specific plants she loves after a quick break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again. Did you notice how both the ideas of plants as superheroes in our lives and our gardening lives as practices have come up multiple times in the conversations over the past few weeks? Superheroes and practice. I think this repetition and this relationship of us to the greater world bears looking at. It bears appreciating, tuning into, and reminding ourselves of. Keep practicing, friends, and keep looking to your heroes, the plants, and even the plants people who grow us. May we be thankful for them all.
We're back now to our conversation with Australian plantswoman Jack Semler. As we come back, Jack walks us through how she chose the plants she profiles in her new book, Super Bloom. And these include a healthy dose of native Australian plants you will be happy to meet. And I also really appreciated the artistry that that runs throughout the book and that accompanies each plant and with each plant for instance like i'm thinking of uh, i loved the illustration for borage and your very brief kind of distillation of what you found valuable about this plant and i think for borage it was like a friend to bees and i loved that mm. it was a very nice element to the book jack we really wanted to create so many ways in, so many different ways in, mm -hmm. and the illustrations, I just feel like they're just a sweet distillment of those flowers. Like when I think about something like a delphinium, I just do feel like they're little fairies, like, yeah. or, you know, when you see those straw papers, it's just like um, straw, beautiful straw flowers and those paper daisies, it's the textural element to them, you know, there's... There's just these beautiful things that we first notice about these flowers and through those illustrations and, and descriptions, it's just another way of inviting people in. Agreed. Agreed. When you were thinking about which plants, and, and primarily these are flowering plants that will provide beauty, they will provide cut flowers, they will provide ecological benefit for wildlife in the area. They will provide, in many cases, seed. Uh, and you talk even uh, in, in the third section of the book, Fundamentals, you talk about things like seed saving and, and pruning and harvesting and, you know, that kind of garden methodology. But in the bulk of the book, the plant profiles, how did you choose the plants that you were going to include, Jack? I really wanted to make sure that we had a balance, so a kind of balance of plants of, of familiar favourites mm -hmm. that people would easily readily identify with, but then also other things to try and to kind of go beyond what's possible. And one of my favourite things about the profiles is that we've included little planting partners, so suggestions and ideas of of things that you can bring together. And for me, I just wanted to make sure it could be, you know, create a beautiful baseline of what, what I can grow in my garden that kind of crosses over the seasons and crosses over different conditions because we've got so many different climatic conditions, even just within Australia, well, let alone in the yeah. hemisphere as well, that we wanted to create a beautiful accessible the tool that, anybody feels like they could pick it up, they could definitely grow some of those plants in their garden. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What would you say were some of the plants that you have included that might surprise people, Jack? I think the Wallenbergia, it's Australian native and it's lesser known. So it's this beautiful little forb, this beautiful little native herb that we've got in Australia. It's indigenous to Victoria, so the state in which I live and and in Frankston, you know, where I grow my garden heartland, it's it's from this area. 
And it's just one of the finest little things. It's this beautiful thing. It's got the slenderest kind of tiniest little, you know, stems that kind of emerge through the foliage. And it's one of those plants that's so good at knitting together with other things. Mm. So it can kind of come up through succulents or you might have a woody shrub that it will kind of emerge from. And the it has this beautiful blue kind of, delicate flower that can be, get quite big and and I think that that kind of a, we call it an Australian bluebell mm-hmm. but I think that that's something that might be a little lesser known and a bit of surprise that I just really thought you know we need to include a, a bit of our identity yes but then also explore like why those flowers like why we can actually create these complex and you know, creative gardens that really use a broad palette of plants, such as you as as you described, Jennifer, we can use our native indigenous plants to the region and we can include them with other climate compatible things that bring wonder. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And you are well known for your summer dry planting advocacy, knowledge, enthusiasm. And I think that is something that all gardeners are coming to appreciate much more as we we as gardeners as a whole work to use less resources and be more mindful of of how we are gardening in our places and you know even climates that receive a, a lot of water still experience drought in summers and whether seasonally or or unusually so some of these less needy plants uh, are just a great joy to discover. Absolutely. I think especially, and, you know, as Australians, our hearts really go out to the Northern Hemisphere this summer with Mm -hmm. the fires. Mm. We know that experience very well. Yeah. And I think we have experience in really growing through extremes. We don't typically grow in in a climate that's just in a mean anymore. And I think everywhere around the world, you know, in Europe, in the UK, it's time for us to really start looking at things that have more of that resilience and, you know, and preparing for some of that climate change as well in our gardens. And so, yes, we, our hearts really do live in, in dry summer plantings as well. Because I think it also, it kind of challenges your assumptions too. I think sometimes it's easy to assume that there's not whimsical beauty in a dry summer garden, but Mm. we really know that that's not the case, Mm -hmm. that you can experience all this abundant and beauty in these environments as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think the wider our perspective is as gardeners, the more we are shown that that is true as our horticultural uh, representation has improved in garden books and garden media of all kinds. I think we have learned just how diverse we can be and how resilient we can be by expanding our palettes. Mm, absolutely. And I think this is such a great addition to exactly that kind of mindset and behavior shift in us as gardeners. So the, I'm not, I'm probably going to say that wrong, the Wallenbergia Yes, no, that that's good. That's a good one. It's a lovely <laughs> one, and is that's a perennial, but it also reseeds beautifully, or is it an annual that reseeds? 
It's a little bit rhizominous okay. in its root system. So it really depends on its conditions. So it will kind of die down over summer and it can reshoot. But it's also, you can grow it from seeds. So if you can source it in the States or you can source it elsewhere around the world, you know, it, it can readily germinate from seeds. So something definitely to keep an eye out for. Okay, good. And then uh, maybe one or one or two other plants you want to really call out to people because there's a, yeah. how many total plants are, I mean, I know you have uh, each plant has all 70? the partners. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Definitely more than 70. And then I got greedy. And so we created some groups, um, like, um, Bellifers to right, include right. quite a few. <laughs> but one of my other real favorites, I think, is the Everlastings and the Straw Flowers. Mm-hmm. So we've got Rhodanthes and Chrysocephalums in Australia and different kinds of Xerochrysums. And, and these are the, the, the amazing kind of flowers that have the paper petals. Mm-hmm. And so they're incredible the way that they actually grow and and you can see them in nature and you can see them in your garden. But they're really, they've got this kind of tactile quality to them. We recently did a project that included a lot of paper daisies in it and they were so well ruffled. Um, People just loved touching them and running their hands over the petals and and kids would just touch them so, so gently. They were all fine, these beautiful paper daisies, but but they're so, so wonderful and they dry beautifully as well. And so I think that that's been like that's quite an iconic kind of group of of flowers that Mm -hmm. Australia can share. Yeah. And then I'm, you know what, I'm a real sucker. I just really love annual flowers too. So things like sunflowers, nasturtiums, like I, I really feel like those kinds of classic garden um, plants, it's very hard to go past them too. It is. And I, they sort of went out of style for a while. Mm. And I see, I feel like people are relearning once we got past the idea that we're supposed to bed out our plants, uh, our gardens in annuals as like a whole display every year, mm. uh, we we got away from them. And now I, I feel like gardeners are really trying to embrace interesting ways to use interesting natives to extend their season on either side. Do, do you feel like yes. that? Absolutely. I think that it hasn't really been explored Uh, extensively in Australia, but I really agree. I think that there's so many opportunities because, you know, at the moment in Australia, in our winter, we've got incredible wattles like acacias Mm -hmm. that are all in bloom right through winter. And so it's incredible to kind of pair some of those native plants that you've got from your area with some of those classic flowers. So like you know, growing some model in your garden, but then also growing, you know, some beautiful summer flowering herbaceous salvias, like so that you get some beauty during summer. I think there's so many opportunities to really bring different things together. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So one of the other elements in the book, so we'll we'll move now because there are just so many plants and Jack can't yeah. give them all away. But one of the other elements that really moved me in the book, Jack, was the inclusion of profiles of gardeners and the way gardens make our lives. It was very special to me. I think I've been so fortunate to have incredible mentors, not just through my family, 
but these incredible mentors like Marilyn and other women that have helped me along my way in becoming a horticulturalist and in doing the kind of work that I do now, but also that we have these really incredible private moments in our garden between people and plants, all of this kind of special wonder that happens. And I think through these conversations, it's so wonderful to share you know, to share people that they have, they are gardeners, they are plant people, and but the kind of magic that they experience to really encourage everybody else to give it a go to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved, yeah. I loved reading about these gardeners. I think two of whom I knew, and then the others I didn't know anything about. Mm. And so, um, and it does put such a human face on what it means to use these plants, to love these plants, to learn from and and grow with all of these plants and these gardening skills that you're putting together in super bloom. Mm. And that we're all learning and growing that, you know, it's okay. Like we're all on some spectrum of that journey and learning how to garden, how to improve our practice, whether we're professionals, whether we're home gardeners, whether we're just getting started. And so I think that they, yeah, the women were so generous in just sharing those stories and and that meaning that they get from their gardens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gardeners are pretty generous generally, don't yeah. you find? Oh, I love the plant people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were very lucky to be part of a beautiful community. It's true. We find each other. So When you look forward, I mean, this has been a big project and it is now a practice, a growing endeavor in your life. What are your hopes as you look forward from the book launching into the world and your practice continuing to grow, Jack? I'm really hopeful of being part of a generation of gardening that can start embracing plants with nuance and to really start exploring what future gardens and landscapes mean to us, mean to us in Australia, but mean to us around the world. I really feel that, you know, plants are the solution. There's the solution for our changing climate. They're the solution for well-being for our communities as well as individuals in them, that there's so much hope and optimism that we can grow our way through things. And so I really hope that our work really embraces and encourages people, whether that's through masterclasses, whether that's from coming and visiting one of our art projects or, you know, just the beautiful way we can work with other professionals like landscape architects and really inspire their use of plans. I really hope that we start seeing a diversity of of what gardens and landscapes can be that really embrace who we are in Australia. So our history, our First Nations, you know, we, we're on land that has been tended for more than 60,000 years. And so how we then move forward as a multicultural community into a future in landscapes that do really experience these climatic extremes, I just think there's so many creative responses to create resilient, abundant, biodiverse cities and communities. I'm really hopeful. I feel like it's hard at times when you look at 
the state of the world, the environment, politics, going through floods and fires. But I really feel like through that practice of gardening, it fills my heart with hope. And I hope that we can be part of bigger things that encourages others as well. Oh, yeah. So your bonus question, which I love, I love asking people now. If you had to live on a desert island of some unknown climate uh, with only five plants to grow or design with for the rest of time, what would those five plants be, Jack, and why? This is so hot. (laughs) I know. Everyone says that to me. You're like, I can't pick. How do I choose them? (laughs) I really love Mallies, so it's a it's a small group of eucalypts. So eucalypts that have lignotubers, so they have this storage organ in the ground. You know, they have multi stems. They grow in arid environments, and so I think like mallies definitely need to be on my hit list, like on my desert island list, because I think that they're amazing and they're very very flowerful. So they're you know, when they bloom, like they're these amazing food sources for the environment, but they're so beautiful and so underused in in dry summer climates. And so Mallies is definitely in there as well as those Australian paper daisies. I can't go past Rodanthines. I just feel like I'll be buried in a field of them. Like <laughs> I think that they've definitely always got my heart. Yeah. And I salvias like there's this gorgeous salvia bellata that I'm growing at the moment that has the most amazing blue and and the diversity of that genus and you could pretty much find anyone to grow anywhere I think I think I love that salvia and sunflowers just because of that happiness like the joy yeah from that big face like I think it really is an iconic flower. I think it connects kids to gardening so easily. I think that they would have to be on the desert island list. And and can can I choose any more? Have I Let's have see. I filled up yet? We did the eucalypts. We did the rhodanthes. We did the sunflowers. Yeah. I think you have two more. Oh, great! Um, I would love to choose um, acacias for the green and gold. I know that this wouldn't the um, film, this won't be shared for a few months, but the Matildas have been playing in the World Cup, our amazing football team. And I think that green and gold, you know, if the acacias flowering at the same time really conveys that. I love that. I never, I never saw that connection, Jack, but that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think we really have an affinity with acacias and especially during that time. Yes. And if I can sneak another little one in, I really love, I really love all of those beautiful um, roses as well. I love, I love a Nancy Haywood rose. It's this rambling Australian rose. It's very open. Uh, It's got these pink um, petals. I can see it flowering in the middle of uh, winter from my studio Mm. at home. Mm -hmm. I I think that that kind of delight, that Australian rose, the Nancy Haywood is, is always a favorite. I love them all. And um, it was a great adventurous list that hopefully will uh, resonate with other people and also entice them to go look them up and see pictures of the ones they're not familiar with. But in the meantime, 
thank you so much for your work. Thank you for this epic addition to our garden encyclopedia design and plant list world and for being a guest on Cultivating Place today, Jack. Oh, my pleasure, Jennifer. I just really love what you do. So it's such a treat to come and talk to you today. Jack Semler is a plant practitioner, a multidisciplinary creative, a high-skilled horticulturalist, and the person behind the new book and the Australian-based plant practice, both known as Superbloom. The many experiences that have grown Jack into her current practice include having been a regular writer for Georgina Reed's Wonderground, formerly known as The Plant Hunter, and having served as seed manager for the Australian equivalent of a national horticultural society known as the Diggers Club a mini-gift version of Superbloom, known as the Superbloom Handbook, Maximum Flowers with Minimum Effort, is also out now, and Jack is already at work on her next book, focused on the practice of gardening. For more from Jack, including her hopeful visions for what plants and gardens mean to us as we face the future, and the five plants she would not want to live or garden without, make sure to listen to the podcast version of this week's program, which you can find over at cultivatingplace.com under the podcast tab, or find it wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Join us again next week when we're in conversation with a storied name in these fields of horticulture, specifically organic horticulture. Author, gardener, CEO, and mother, Maria Rodale, joins us to share more about her journey, documented in her newest book, Love, Nature, Magic. Join us next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you, through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Whether you give once a year or once a month, every donation helps us produce Cultivating Place every week. Thank you in advance for your support. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription, and communications support from Deanna Newpert and Matt Valiga. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.